0: He told the judge that he really did love her. The judge asked, "How do you kill someone that you love?" He replied, "That's what I'm still trying to figure out." I am Bill Swafford and this is Murderers in Ohio. So we got a killer all around in Ohio. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Murderers in Ohio. I will be continuing on with 88 counties of murderers in Ohio with a case out of Champaign County. Someone actually suggested that I talk about this case. This case I find a little disturbing and as of right now I don't fully understand why it happened. I will be talking about the Jessica Sacco murder out of Urbana, Ohio. Five people would be arrested for their part of Jessica's murder. So let me start this off with talking a little bit about Urbana and Champaign County. Champaign County is about the middle of the state of Ohio on the west side of the state. It is north of Dayton, Ohio. There is about 39,000 people in Champaign County and Urbana is the county seat. There is villages and townships like Mechanicsburg, North Lisburg, St. Paris, Mad River, and more. Olympic gold medalist wrestler David Taylor came out of Champaign County. With this case, I will have to look into a phrase that I've heard about but never given much thought to. That is, the juggalo lifestyle. This is something I will have to talk more about later. I'm having a hard time figuring out how I want to start this off so I guess I will start this off by talking about Jessica Sacco. Jessica was 21 years old and lived in an apartment with her boyfriend Matthew Puccio who was 25 years old. Jessica and Matt were both unemployed. Jessica had shorter length brown hair and wore glasses. At some point Jessica had taken some college classes at a local college. A year or so before all this happened, Jessica had been living in California. Jessica had just gotten out of a bad relationship, and then she had moved to Ohio. Jessica had dealt with depression and a bipolar disorder. Jessica would move into a one-bedroom apartment on Light Street in Urbana. This apartment is like a one-story white house that had been cut up into apartments. The rent was $365 a month. Jessica would have an active presence online, she would even do online dating. Jessica would eventually start talking to a 25 year old man from Texas, Matthew Puccio. This would happen through a group on Facebook. This all would be going on around the end of 2011 and the beginning of 2012 up into the month of March 2012. Matt was an ex-Marine. Jessica and Matt both had just gotten out of bad relationships. Matt had been engaged, but it had ended. Matt had a son and daughter in Texas. Jessica and Matt would talk online for a while, and at some point, Matt would come to Ohio to visit Jessica. Matt is skinny with short, dark hair, with some facial hair. There's a tattoo on the right side of Matt's neck. Sometime after the visit to Ohio, Matt would move to Ohio and move in with Jessica. It is said that Jessica and Matt shared one thing in common, and that's the juggalo lifestyle. So what is the juggalo lifestyle? In 1994, a rap group by the name of Insane Clown Posse started calling their fans juggalos. It was a way for outcasts to feel as though they were a part of a family. There's usually face paint involved, mostly painted as evil clowns. The FBI considers some of the juggalo groups as gangs for their involvement with crime. It sounds like a carefree party all the time lifestyle. I don't believe Jessica knew Matt well enough to live with Matt. When I started going through this case, there was a few times I thought they had to be doing meth or something. Meth addicts live like these people were living. Sometimes people are blinded by loneliness. Susan, Jessica's mom, said that she started seeing some changes within Jessica. Susan started to worry that Jessica had stopped taking her medication for her depression and bipolar. Susan was right. Matt had persuaded Jessica to stop taking her medication. I wonder if they were selling the medication. There are some depression medication that some people do get a buzz off of. Now it's said that Jessica and Matt did argue often. Being young and not really knowing each other would lead to a young couple to argue a lot. The landlord, whose name is Gary, says that he didn't hear much from Matt. How are they paying rent? At some point, Matt would ask some friends to move in with Jessica and him. It is said that Jessica really did not agree with this. A married couple, Andrew and Candice Fournay, moved in with Jessica and Matt. Andrew and Candice was from Benton, Michigan. Both are a little overweight with shoulder-length hair. It is said that Matt had met the couple online, even though I read somewhere that Matt had once said that Andrew and him had gone to school together in California. One problem I've had while looking into this case is that there's a lot of wrong information out on this case, and I like to have my stuff straight. Now, Andrew and Candace would have moved into the one-bedroom apartment with Jessica and Matt around the time of January of 2012. Angie was 26 and Candace was 25 years old. So that's two couples, four adults, and one small, one-bedroom apartment. Andrew and Candace did not work, so they were not paying rent or any of the bills. Candace did drive a van. Why would not Matt ask another couple who does not work to live with him and Jessica? That is a lack of privacy and having to support two grown adults. This would cause any couple to argue. I personally could not put myself into a situation like that. This next part I don't fully understand. Sometime in February of 2012, Matt and the Fournays took a trip to Texas. I don't know if Jessica had gone on this trip or not. Matt and his friends picked up a 14-year-old girl who was a runaway. They brought the teen back to Ohio. The teen would also stay at the one-bedroom apartment. Now there's four unemployed adults and one underage runaway in the small one-bedroom apartment. I'll ask again, who's paying the rent? It is said that in March, around the 15th to the 19th of March, Matt would meet another couple at a local library in Urbana. This new couple would be from Urbana, Christopher Wright and Sharon Cook. Chris is a rough looking type of guy. Now there is six adults and one underage runaway in the house. To be fair, I cannot find out anything on how long the teenager stayed at the apartment. So I'm not going to keep talking about the teenager though I will have to bring this person back up at the end of this and there's a reason why I have to do that. It is said that Jessica did not get along with everyone. I personally would be hard to live with too if someone invited four people to live in a small apartment. I have to say that the only time I hear people living like this is when drugs are involved. It is usually meth or heroin, and sometimes both. I have not seen anything about drugs being involved with this, so as of right now, that is just my opinion. It is said that the lifestyle was getting to be too much for Jessica. Jessica asked her mom, Susan, to stay at her house for a while to get away from Matt and the others. But Susan, Jessica's mom, needed a break from all the drama. Jessica had to stay at the apartment. Sometimes a parent really needs a break from dealing with drama over a grown child and that grown child's issues. However, in this situation, that meant Jessica was stuck in that apartment and it was her against five other people. Those five people would all be sitting in the room together texting text each other about Jessica while Jessica was in the same room. Jessica should have found a way to force them all out of the apartment. She should have talked to her landlord. It was around the end of March when Susan, Jessica's mom, tried to contact Jessica, but Jessica would never respond back. This would be sometime between March 22nd through March 30th. It is said that Jessica was the type to always respond back when messages are called. At this point, at least Susan would consider Jessica to be missing only a few months before Jessica's 22nd birthday. On one day, either March 27th or 28th, Susan did go over to Jessica's and Matt's apartment. Susan was greeted at the door by Matt. Matt had told Susan that Jessica wasn't there and that Jessica had gone and stayed with a friend. So Susan would leave that day without getting any help from Matt. Susan was worried about Jessica, just like any parent would worry about their child. Susan would go back to Matt's and Jessica's apartment on March 29th of 2012. This would have been on a Thursday. On that Thursday, no one answered the door at Jessica's and Matt's apartment. Apparently Matt and his friends were gone. The door was locked. Susan knew where the spare key was at and used it to get inside. I'm going to have to say this is where Susan should have called law enforcement to do a welfare check on Jessica. That way, law enforcement would have been the ones entering the apartment. Susan made her way into the apartment and found that the apartment was nasty and unlivable. Trash and dirty clothes all over the place. Susan said that the smell was awful. She made her way through the apartment and got to the bathroom. The door to the bathroom was locked. Susan got down on her knees and tried to look underneath the door to see if anyone was in the bathroom. Susan said that she had smelled an odor coming from the bathroom. At this point, Susan still does not call law enforcement. She does make a call, though. She calls Jessica and Matt's landlord. She wants the landlord to check out the apartment and the bathroom. Gary, the landlord, does not go over to Jessica's apartment until March 30th, the next day. Gary goes inside the apartment, looks around, and goes to the bathroom door. Gary finds that the bathroom door is still locked. Gary knew that Susan was really worried about her daughter. Gary decided to find out why the bathroom door was locked. I want to mention that at this time, Gary did not report anything to law enforcement. Gary took a screwdriver and took out the screws to the doorknob and then took the doorknob off the door. Gary looked through the hole in the door where the doorknob used to be. He could only see the shower curtain. Gary then pried the door open. Gary went into the bathroom and pulled the shower curtain to one side What Gary had seen made Gary take off running out of the house. That is when Gary had called the Urbana Police Department. What was left of Jessica's body was in the bathtub. Jessica had been murdered. Now, I did say what was left of Jessica's body was in the bathtub. Jessica's legs had been cut off, and possibly more than that. At the time Jessica had been found, it was apparent that she had been stabbed. The coroner had said that Jessica had been dead for at least eight days before she had been found. Jessica had been stabbed in the stomach, but that wasn't what she had died from. Whatever Jessica had been stabbed with did not hit any vital organs. Jessica had been suffocated. Then after she was dead, Jessica's legs had been cut off. But Jessica's legs were not inside of the apartment. More body parts were possibly cut off as well. I will talk more about that later. I wonder how long people had stayed inside that apartment after Jessica had died. So what happened to 21-year-old Jessica Sacco and who all was involved? The Urbana Police Department did the right thing they got the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation involved. A week after Jessica's body was found, five people would be arrested for the murder of 21-year-old Jessica Sacco and for cutting off her legs. Those five people were 25-year-old Matthew Puccio, 37-year-old Christopher Wright, 25-year-old Sharon Cook, 26-year-old Andrew Fournay, and Andrew's wife, 25-year-old Candace Fournay. Matt was charged with aggravated murder and was held on a $100,000 bond. The rest were charged for their part of the attempted cover-up and the abuse of a corpse. Those five had a $50,000 bond apiece. During the investigation, it is said that Matt gave five versions of what happened to Jessica before eventually telling the truth. Matt had first said that he had nothing to do with Jessica's murder because she had kicked him out of the house. Apparently, in the short time that Jessica and Matt had been together, there was already an on-and-off-again relationship. The rest of Matt's excuses to why he killed Jessica had Matt in a self-defense situation. Matt said she had hit him, and then Matt said that she wanted him dead. Matt had said that he had never meant to cut off Jessica's legs. Before I go on with this, I want to remind you that Matt is a 25-year-old ex-marine who should not have any problems defending himself hand-to-hand against a woman and most men. There was absolutely no reason for him to pick up a knife. Plus, once a victim's legs gets cut off, I think the self-defense excuse gets thrown out the window. Law enforcement had at first thought that the other two couples had a part in the actual murder. However, the other couples, Sharon, Chris, Andrew, and Candace, were in the living room. Matt and Jessica were alone in the bathroom. There was some kind of argument going on in the bathroom. Matt had said he had confronted Jessica about a text that he had found on Jessica's phone. Apparently, Jessica had sent a text to someone saying that she wanted Matt dead. Matt accused Jessica of trying to find someone to kill him so if Jessica was wanting him dead and he was so scared of that why was he alone in the bathroom with her and why was he at the apartment why didn't he just go find a place to stay with his friends that to me sounds like he put himself in a situation for me if your excuse is self-defense that's not a good way to start off Matt said Jessica wanted to die And wanted him to kill her. Matt said that she practically begged him to kill her as a punishment for what she had done. Sounds a little cult-like. If that was the truth. I find it hard to believe that someone, anyone, would beg someone to kill them. Of course, it is known to happen in cults. Matt, for some reason, had a knife in his hand, which just happened to be at the level of Jessica's stomach. Matt had said that Jessica had grabbed his hand and poured herself into the knife. At some point, Matt said that the average person would have fought back or called 911, but she never did. Matt had said that Jessica's last words were that she loved him and that she forgave him. To me, it sounds as though Matt is making himself out to be some kind of a leader by saying Jessica wanted to die for punishment for a text and she understood why Matt had to kill her. It sounds as though he wanted to be a cult leader. It sounds like things people would do if they were part of a cult. Were these people more than a gang. After Jessica had been stabbed, Matt had sent a text to someone in the living room. He had told someone that Jessica had been stabbed. No one in the living room left the apartment. No one in the living room called the cops. I have not found anything that says how many times Jessica was stabbed. Here's the messed up part. Jessica did not die by the knife. Remember, the coroner said that none of Jessica's vital organs were harmed. Jessica had stayed in the bathroom for an hour, in the bathtub, suffering from at least one stab wound. Even if Matt did stab Jessica in self-defense, it is no longer self-defense when he left Jessica in the bathtub, suffering, for an hour without calling for help. Now Jessica died from suffocation. Matt had taken a plastic bag and wrapped it over Jessica's face. Jessica tried to put up a fight as much as she could. Jessica had actually ripped the plastic bag. This is when Matt took another plastic bag and put it over Jessica's face. There is no way that this was done out of self-defense. Jessica was helpless in the tub after being stabbed. No one had tried to help Jessica. Matt had used two plastic bags to suffocate Jessica. I don't understand how four people could sit in the living room knowing that Jessica had been stabbed and knowing that Matt had gone in there to finish what he had started. What kind of hold did Matt have on these people? I believe Matt had talked to two couples into helping him dispose of Jessica's body. Part of me believes this was planned before it even happened. I also believe what they did next was planned by Matt, the Fournays, Chris and Sharon. The five of them had to have had a talk about this. They had to have talked about how to get Jessica's body out of the apartment. It is said that Chris and Andrew helped Matt cut off Jessica's legs. They had used swords and knives. They had actually taken a break to go to Speedway and then they had gone to McDonald's to get something to eat. It doesn't sound as though they felt bad for what had happened to Jessica and for the fact that they were in the process of cutting off her legs. Matt said that he was surprised that Chris and Sharon did not turn him in to the police. He said that he only met Chris and Sharon a few days before the actual murder in the library. So why did Chris and Sharon go along with this? For someone that they did not know. For me, this has to be about drugs, or like I said, it was some mini cult of some sort, a juggalo lifestyle. Andrew and Candace would help Matt get rid of Jessica's legs. The three of them would take Candace's van to southern Ohio. They would cross over the Ohio River and cross over into Covington, Kentucky. This is where they supposedly had gotten rid of Jessica's legs. This would be 70 to 80 miles south of Urbana in Champaign County. I don't understand how people would agree to cut off the legs of a murder victim. I don't understand why no one called the police. I will ask this again. What kind of mental hold did Matt Puccio have on these people? read a couple of articles that was about someone who had talked to Matt and the Fournays why they had Jessica's legs in the van down in Hamilton, Ohio. And these people actually rode with Matt into Kentucky when Matt got rid of Jessica's legs. A lady and her mother had actually seen the bag which had Jessica's legs inside. They said the bag was still in the vehicle. Someone had touched the bag. They thought it was deer parts in the bag. I don't understand why they say they would thought it was deer parts, as in deer legs. I mean, that would be obvious if a deer leg was in a bag. Linda and her mom claimed to have seen Matt get rid of the bag. They said Matt just got out of the vehicle and just threw the bag. At some point, Matt told Linda that Jessica's legs and arm and some fingertips were in the bag. I don't understand why Matt would tell these people that. Linda had claimed that she and her mom had tried to talk Matt into turning himself into law enforcement. No one called the police. Linda believes that Matt should not be in prison because what happened was out of self-defense because Jessica wanted Matt dead. If that is true, then Matt should have never went back to the apartment. Matt should have never been alone in the bathroom with Jessica. There was no way that he was scared for his life. There is no way that he was so scared of Jessica that he had to kill her. Matt had a lot of people fooled. Matt and the Fournays were arrested in Hamilton, Ohio then they would be transported back to Urbana. Matt's charges were aggravated murder, felonious assault, and abuse of a corpse. Five people who were charged with this don't have a previous criminal history in Champaign County. So what would lead these people to do what they did? By not calling the police for help. By helping Matt get rid of the legs and by helping him cut the legs off. I don't understand how Chris, Sharon, and the Fournace thought it was best to help Matt out. It was truly Jessica against the five of them. Susan, Jessica's mom, sat in the courtroom at Matt's trial with Jessica's ashes in a red velvet bag that she kept on her lap. Matt had originally pled guilty by a reason of insanity. That changed, though, when he was found competent to stand trial. The two couples will serve prison time for their part in trying to cover up Jessica's murder. Andrew Fournay would get 10 years. Candace Fournay would receive 6 years. Chris Wright got 4 years and Sharon Cook got three years. Matt had pled guilty and received a life sentence. He must serve 42 years of that sentence before he is eligible for parole. Matt had told the judge that he had loved Jessica. The judge asked Matt, how do you kill and butcher someone that you love? Matt replied, that's what I'm still trying to figure out. After Matt was sentenced and was already serving his time in prison Matt would be back in a courtroom again but for a different charge. This is where I will talk about the runaway from Texas again. The teen was returned back to her parents and her parents pressed charges. Matt was found guilty for having sex with the 14 year old runaway. Which means Matt was a sexual predator. Did Jessica find out about Matt and the 14-year-old? Matt did have sex with the teenager before the murder. Could this be the real reason why Matt killed Jessica because she found out about his secret? This all seems gang like A juggalo gang. Which almost is close to being cult-like, with Matt as leader. Jessica did not deserve to die this way, no matter what the reason could have been. Jessica was living in an apartment with five other people. No one tried to stop Matt and help Jessica. If Jessica would have received medical attention after she had been stabbed, she might be alive today. After everything I have gone over so far I do not believe Matt deserves a chance at parole in 42 years. Even though there are some people that believe that he does. I believe Matt's sentence should have been life without the chance of parole. Matt will be in his late 60s when he faces a parole board. I believe Matt is a psychopath and it is good that he is locked up, that way he cannot hurt anyone else. It has been 10 years since Jessica's murder, so all four people who had helped Matt try to cover this up should be out of prison by now. This gruesome murder should have never happened. Jessica Sacco should have never died the way that she did. Jessica was just a young woman who needed some help. Thank you for joining me for this episode. I am Bill Swafford, and this has been Murderers in Ohio. Are you a fan of listening to True Crime podcasts about cold cases? Then you will want to check out Cold Ohio. Cold Ohio is a true crime podcast with 10-15 to 15 minute episodes about unsolved homicide cases from all around Ohio. So, put your investigative minds to work with Code Ohio, which is available wherever you get your podcast. We got the devil on the road in Ohio.